emotionally at game time, Joe, that stuff goes out the window. That it's gone. <laughs> More Wiser Podcast, Bill Ekstrom, Data-Driven Performance Coaching. So Bill, we're both Green Bay Packers fans, and I think without question, most folks would agree Vince Lombardi is on the Mount Rushmore of coaches, right? You go on the internet and you search for greatest coaches of all time. He's probably going to be in the top three. I mean, they named the Super Bowl trophy after him. But in the way that you have defined transformational coaches, he doesn't really fit into that mold. And so I want to propose a situation to you. Let's say you're the athletic director of a high school in Texas and Coach Lombardi comes back to life and he agrees to coach your boys football team in the fall. What's the first conversation you have with Vince when he comes in your office to set goals for the season to help him align and become more of a transformational type of leader for his team? Wow. Okay. This, this will be fun. Um, so many things going through my mind. First of all, what so many things are always evolving. What, what may have been transformational back then may not be today. You know, uh, the, the way the demographics have changed, obviously the psychographics more importantly have changed. Our world has evolved uh, the way people think, the way they behave, everything has changed. So I'm not ever claiming that Coach Lombardi, who I'm a fan of, was not transformational. His methods then, I just don't think would be as effective today. Or quite frankly, well, yeah, I think as effective today. Today's athletes don't want to be, um, by and large, by and large, what we're seeing is today's athletes don't want to have that uber disciplinarian in your face, screaming kind of coach. Um, you know, Bobby Knight, I think proved that he, his method for coaching as while he was coaching the evolution while he was coaching, he couldn't adapt. And ultimately, he leaves in what peop some people believe was a little bit of shame. Um, so my conversation with Coach Lombardi would be, how willing are you to adapt? You know, while the young men and women have, e have changed and evolved, have you evolved? The game has evolved. Have you evolved? You know, coaches are quick to adapt to evolving schemes, but they're less likely to adapt to evolving people. Okay. So transformational is relative to them when you coach. And right now, what you're deeming as transformational is current with the era and the, the culture of today and behavioral tendencies. And so you really have to be in tune with what's going on with your players and the lives they live in order to become one of these coaches, as you describe? You know, not just that, uh, Joe, but I would agree with that. There are times, see, here's, here's the hang up on transactional versus transformational. It's knowing when I need to be what kind of coach. It's to say I need to be transformational 24-7 would be inaccurate. 
because there's times transactional coaching is more effective than needed. And I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you graduate four out of your five starters on a basketball team. Not only that, you lose all your uh, all your seniors. And so the new team is comprised with a bunch of young, inexperienced varsity players. There's going to be a lot more transactional type of coaching that needs to occur before you can become, do more transformational types of coaching. There, the disciplines to you, the drills, what to expect from you and what you expect from them, what they expect from you as a coach, what you expect from them as athletes um, to get them to live the basic values of your program to move consistently and effectively throughout practice. Those are very transactional uh, activities that are needed for coaches and teams to be effective and grow. And so look at the transformational type of coaching on more of a continuum. It's not, it's not just, you know, this is what I strive to be all the time. For me, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier, for example, to, to be transformational as opposed to transactional. And transactional is neat. I, I, I'm not as good there. I'm not as strict. I'm not as self-structured. I'm more philosophical. I'm more challenging. I'm more, um, I'm going to give you ownership and let you grow or fail uh, as opposed to dictating what you do. So determining when to be either transactional, transformational has a lot to do with understanding your players. So you said if you have a new group of players, sometimes you got to lay down the law a little bit more versus a, a group of veterans who can kind of self-sustain and, and take initiative on their own. So then, you know, student athlete, technically, and I think how we're talking about it mainly is high schoolers, but, you know, there's a continuum there. So say I'm coaching middle school basketball or say I'm coaching, you know, uh, the varsity team or I'm coaching younger children is, does the percentage change as, uh, kids grow and are able to, you know, take that initiative on their own? I'm considering my visceral response to that is yes, it it does evolve because transformational coaching say at a tenured uh, uh, volleyball team. So now take the opposite, right? You're returning, say, five of six starters on a volleyball team as opposed to bringing in new five starters. So now you're returning five of six. Now all of a sudden you discuss strategy with them. During a huddle in a timeout, you might turn to them and say, what are you seeing? What would you like to run? What should we execute here? So I think that at that point is transformational. Take, take a middle school. There might be times and instances where that is um, a good option. That is something you may want to do. But likewise, transformational has a different look then which is really probably more around how you, how you make kids feel. 
And that's hard to know. An example that I remember, and I'm not bragging on myself, but when my son's, I don't know, it was maybe fifth grade basketball league, I was coaching. And one of the, um, the, the tallest player on the team at that time was not very coordinated. He's a wonderful young man. But we celebrated any time he did something well. And I say we, the, the entire team. And after the season, I'll never forget this. I can't tell you how many games we won or lost that year. I have no idea. But what I do remember about that season is after the season, his, the, this young man's mother came up to me and said, hey, thank you for the way you worked with my son. For the first time in his life, he's on a team where he actually feels important. That, in my mind, is transformational. Now, was he designing plays and diet, you know, schemes for us? No, but his mother believed we were trying our, I, the coaches were transformational in his life. So uh, I guess I'll skip ahead then a bit. Cause I want to ask you about college sports. Cause this, to me, this really blurs the line in my mind because nowadays players can get paid coaches make their livings and pay their mortgage based on wins and losses. Do you still define those athletes as student athletes in in your analyses or is there really kind of a separate middle bin between pro and high school student athlete okay then that's a really good question so here's how i'll answer that the idea of treating people this way now whether it's in business where we also pay people what we've learned when we study leadership and business or what you can call them coaches, you can call them, as a matter of fact, in our book, The Coaching Effect, it's about uh, leadership and business, right? So what we've learned is that even in the business world, the idea, the concept is to get the most, if I'm a leader, to get, we'll just look at it this way, discretionary effort out of the people on my team. Another way to look at that is creating, getting um, a motivation to perform. So when we think of those concepts in, in business, and I'll draw the parallel here in a second, it's how, uh, how much more engaged am I in my work because of you, Joe, as my boss? How many more hours do I work? How many more phone calls do I make? Uh, how much more will I help a colleague? How many calls from recruiters I will not take because of my love of working for and with you, being on your team? We've proven in our research that there are things you do in spite of the fact that you're paying, you you may be paying me well. There's things you do that get me, that allow me to give you more discretionary effort and that you do that get more discretionary effort from me. Okay, now scoot that over to the world sports. We have seen nothing in a research that says relationships do not matter when it comes to a coach athlete at the college level. As a matter of fact, I would argue they probably matter. I could argue that they they may matter more. When you look at relationships, we look at that in terms of your ability as a coach to create trust connections with people as well as creating psychologically safe environments. When I feel connected with you, when I trust you as my coach, do you think I'm going to give you less effort or more effort? Yeah, more. Absolutely. 
Exactly. If I feel like I'm in an environment where I'm safe to take risks, I'm safe to ask questions, will I perform at higher levels or lower levels? So I don't think the lines are blurred there. What's blurring in my mind is, do I want to do that because now I'm making money? Do I care about that? Hey, I'm getting my my money, you know, NIL, you know, can I get my offensive lineman to protect me as a quarterback when I'm making a million bucks a year and they're making 50 grand a year? Right. That's a tough thing to navigate and it's new. <laughs> right. So, so the, the, the um, behaviors of coaches in my mind don't shift. It's the money throws a different motivator in there. Right. And you mentioned goals and goal setting. So we've all been in those, you know, preseason meetings where the coach lays out what the goals are going to be for the year. If you're the coach, Bill, and you're talking to your team, what are a good set of transformational goals you might set for the group that don't have wins and losses at the top and are achievable and measurable? Well, first of all, um, man, I like how you're asking these questions. Goals themselves are not transformational. It is transformational is how you work within them. First of all, how do you set them? When you hand me goals, does that make it transformational? I would argue that makes it more transactional. When I'm allowed to create my goals, when I am given a, a, a you know, Within boundaries, of course, that all you're doing as a coach, you're, you're setting up boundaries, but within those boundaries, the ability to set my goals is way more transformational because then I own them. And then what you do as a coach with them can be more transactional versus transformational as well. So if I set my goals, then what happens? Do you sit down with me and review them? Do you challenge me on it? Ask me the reasoning behind the goal. Why is the goal stated this way? Why is it set at that level? Do you think it's a stretch goal for you or a reasonable goal? Do you have more you could give? Could that goal be higher? And then to measure and monitor progress through what I'll call one-on-one meetings with athletes, that's what's transformational. Within the goal setting, do you ask things that are related yet unrelated to maybe a goal? So what's a personal goal, but what's a team goal? Now, people may say, well, what does personal goals have to do with What I want personally is inextricably linked to what I'm doing professionally or even, you know, and I would argue, you know, at the college level or even the high school level, a lot of that's my life as my athletics. Um if that's what I'm doing. So to understand me as a person makes you a more effective coach for me. If you ask me, how, what, what is my greatest strength as a teammate? And what is the weakness as a teammate that I can improve, that I want to work on? When you ask me what you what I view as my role on the team that year is a critical question that not enough coaches get in writing. They don't ask. Because if it's very obvious, I'm going to be like the ninth or tenth guy, and I'm not going to see the floor much, 
unless we have a blowout win in basketball. And I say in my goals that my role on the team, I expect to be a starter at point guard. That better drive a conversation between myself and the coach versus where I'm at and where I'm going to have to be to attain that goal. I can't help but draw the correlations between that and the workforce and having a very real conversation with someone where they're at versus what their goals are and what they aspire to. How do you, if there is a giant disconnect, Bill, how do you start that conversation? Because it's not easy to deliver that type of news. And I think a lot of people, coaches included, they would rather defer and not have that, you know, sweat inducing uh, one-on-one with someone. And you're right. And and so right there is one differentiator between great coaching and not great coaching. (laughs) People that will walk away from the conflict that will, they will not face that dis the the discomfort of having that conversation. Shame on them. Um, In in the world of coaching or leadership, I, I think the most underrated skill is the ability to ask questions. And, and I say skill because it can be developed. It's not, some people are, are better at it than others. So maybe there's some talent involved, but it is, can certainly be developed. So to answer that question directly, most people will default to telling why they're not a good candidate now, why they're not going to be promoted now, for example, as opposed to really digging and probing through a series of questions. Tell me more about why you want to be at a manager level, uh, why you believe you're ready to be at a manager level. Tell me a little bit more about why you think you're ready. What is it about that role that motivates you? Um, what skills do you have versus what you don't have? What, what things do you want to develop? How quickly in your mind could those be developed? And pretty soon, generally what you find especially with emotionally intelligent people, is they realize that, huh, I see, okay, I'm not, I I understand what I need to do. I see why I'm not ready yet. And when it becomes their decision, all of a sudden you're not a bad guy. And not not that I don't care. I do care about being a bad guy versus a good guy, but I think you see the spirit of that conversation. When it becomes their decision, as opposed to my decision, uh, it's more accepted. Now, let's say you're a coach who sees your TED Talk for the first time. They've never uh, had that introspective look at themselves and the environment they're creating for their players. What are some subtle signs you could spot on your team and the way they communicate with you that you might not actually be as transformational as you'd like to be or need to be? Okay, so you're obviously referring to the second TED Talk. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. and let me paraphrase that. What are the signs that I may not be, that I may be leaving the opportunity to be transformational on the table? Is that correct? Yeah. Like what, what sorts it? of, yeah. What sorts of in, inputs or feedback might I be getting that uh, are flying under my radar that could alert me to that? Okay. So let's, let's, let's tease apart practice and games for a minute. Um, at practice, when do I stop practice as often when players do things, when my athletes do something well, as opposed to when they do something wrong? Okay. Okay. When um, 
I am asking or telling an athlete or about showing how they need to do a skill differently or better? Do I use words or do I use words and do I show and tell as opposed to just tell? Okay. When an athlete does something wrong, when, when an athlete makes a mistake on a skill, um, do I tell them what they did wrong or do I ask them, hey, what'd you do well there? What didn't go right? And let them communicate that as opposed to just me telling them, hey, keep your feet together on that. Come on, get a stronger base, whatever that may be, right? You know, hey, that that pass wasn't effective or that did that pass have the same effect you wanted it to? No, I missed it. Why did you miss it? Uh, because I didn't have my body turned and my feet planted underneath me. Okay, so what are you going to do next time? Got to make sure and leave with my feet. Good, go do that. Um, coaches that when they do a drill, they first ask the players, why are we doing this drill? If they understand the why behind it, the more apt to do it and do it well. To create drills, now this is going to sound odd, but there's big believers in this. Can you create drills where athletes fail? Because you want them and need them to fail. And then let them know ahead of time, this drill is designed not to where you can never do it successfully, but it is designed for failure early on because we learn more from failures than we do sometimes successes. It's funny, we had a conversation about this yesterday with our team at Excel Sports, um, a lot of whom, almost all of whom were former athletes in some level, some of them high school Others, D1 and professional athletes, you know, so really, really good uh, young men and women. All of them unequivocally agreed they would always learn more from losses than wins. So why do we as coaches and parents try and keep our kids from losing? That's a great point. And I, I feel like this culture of participation trophies was a poor attempt at trying to transform the culture around sports, although I think it was misguided and maybe didn't uh, do the intended impact it, it meant to, which was to decrease the impact or the focus on wins and losses. And I heard you say once that you asked parents and uh, of student athletes, what were the most important factors for them? I think it was for their, for their children for the upcoming season and winning and losing were at the very bottom, followed second by playing time. That is correct. But I think, gosh, there's such a disconnect between talking to someone away from the field and then when you get to the court or to the the baseball diamond and something switches in people's heads and, and coaches too, how do you how do you mitigate that urge that sports brings out in people to win? Because I would love to get the data on those same parents right before tip-off on how much they view <laughs> wins and losses. <laughs> um, so, wow, the, the the topic of winning and losing is really fascinating. And, and I said, in, even in that TED Talk you were referencing, that winning is an outcome. And 
we it's okay. We do things to drive that outcome, and and that's okay. Winning is setting goals that involve winning is very important. You know, um, conference titles. You know, where you want to place in the conference, setting a goal there is okay. Uh, state championships, national championships, whatever those may be. Those are healthy. Goals increase focus. Goals increase discretionary effort. Uh, those are okay to have. But getting back now, do you want to bring this back to to, to parents? Is that? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to dive into the parents piece because, you know, so many parents become coaches. And so I have another question for you in a second on the correlations between them. But you asked parents, do they care about wins and losses? But, and I think most people agree what you gain from sports is not the wins. The records don't matter. You don't even remember them as you get older. It's the environment you had, the relationships you built with people, but something changes in everybody's head right before the game starts. And those are like, those are the times where you really need level heads and people to remember back to that. It's just a game, but why is it so hard to do that in the moment, Bill? It seems almost impossible for coaches and parents. So I, I think what you're describing, Joe, is um, what I'll refer to as, as a chasm that exists, not just in the world of sports, but in a lot of places, between intellectual understanding and emotional readiness. And I'll give you a quick um, and, and I've done this with many audiences if I'm doing speaking engagement. Um, to, to, to prove my point of this is like intellectually, Joe, do you believe, uh, well, first of all, do you want a long and healthy life? Yeah. Pretty simple question. Of course you do, right? Yep. Okay. Do you believe, Joe, that diet and exercise are critically important to the quality and longevity of your life? Definitely. Okay. Do you diet and exercise properly every day, Joe? Every day, no. Okay. Most people, nine out of 10 is typically what we see in an audience will say, no, I don't. One out of 10 will say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, actually I do. Okay, good. But here's what's, here's my point. Intellectually, Everybody wants a long and healthy life. Intellectually, everybody understands that diet and exercise play a critical role in the quality and longevity of my life. But yet, only one out of 10 has a proper diet and exercise as well every day. So arguably, the most important thing in your life that you want most, quality and longevity, influenced by diet and exercise, you get it, but yet you don't do it every day. There's a gap between intellectual understanding and being, being emotionally ready to do the things right every day. Now, bring this to the world of sports. Intellectually, I believe that parents do understand the importance of uh, preparing young men and women to give them confidence. And these, I could maybe even pull up the piece of paper where some of these things are listed. Um, yeah, as a matter of fact, I have it right here. Um, intellectually, parents understand that a coach should be a good role model. That's probably one of the most important things, right? Right. The second most important thing, coach, according to parents, they want the coaches to care about their student athlete as a person, not just an athlete. 
the third most important thing, building their confidence. The fourth most important thing, this is according to parents now, right? Telling the student athlete when they do a good job. So there's 12 items. The last two are giving your student athlete playing time and winning. Those are the two. So intellectually, and there's stuff in between. Intellectually, parents know that these things, yeah, when it comes to my kids, you're right. I know those are most important. Emotionally, at game time, Joe, that stuff goes out the window. That's gone. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is, hey, I want you to destroy that other team. I want you to destroy those players, right? So emotionally, the logic the 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 um, intellectual understanding is removed and emotion takes over and my emotion to see my kid win and succeed is much stronger than the understanding that those other things are more important. What do you think are some safeguards that could be put in place for youth and high school sports to help tamper this <laughs> when all that shit goes out the window mentality, because you see on YouTube or wherever else you watch videos, parents getting in fights, you know, people berating umpires. Do we need safeguards for coaches and parents? And what would those look like? Um, so two, two different, two different topics are, are two different approaches there. I do believe safeguards are needed, especially if, as it comes to referees, there is a significant referee shortage going on. And it is driven primarily, my understanding is driven primarily by the abuse that they are receiving from parents, both mental and physical. When referees have to run from a gym floor because they are afraid for their lives, or they have to sneak out of a football game for the same reasons, um, that's problematic. But, so here's the but. Parents aren't going away, Joe. They are not going to become less involved right. in the lives of their kids in youth sports. They're paying too much money. I mean, my goodness, I was listening to Michael Lewis and he has an audiobook called Playing to Win where he takes a, a, a pretty good in-depth look at what he calls the youth sports industrial complex. Uh, let me 10, they determined the, if you're a parent of a kid in youth sports today, 10 and a half percent of your budget is dedicated to youth sports. Wow. 70, roughly 75% of people who have kids in youth sports has said their long-term financial plans have been altered because of youth sports. And 25% of parents now go into debt to support their kids as youth sports. Holy cow. Right. So parents, because of these statistics and because of the emotion attached to create those statistics, they're not going away. So youth sports has to really take a step back and say, we can no, we can no longer circle the wagons to say it's us against you parents. We have to find ways to utilize you as an asset. We have to find ways to bring you in to understand as opposed to trying to hold you outside. Now, are there boundaries, reasonable boundaries that can be put in place for parents? Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of those boundaries are 
you know, that you, you hear people create. You, I will not talk to you as a parent without your child present, for example. There are some logical boundaries that take place. I will not talk to you first. Child has to, your, you, your athlete has to come to me first. And then only a meeting with you will be done as a last resort. But here's another point, and this is really, you can tell I'm really passionate about this stuff. Um, when coaches coach in a way, in what I'll call a fully effective way that is focused on the experience of the athlete as opposed to winning, I've seen coaches become, or parents become, they engage themselves less in the process. We have started to quantify and research and survey to understand the experience of parents at high schools, um, uh, at, in various communities, for example. And what's interesting is parents and coaches, as, as we've learned, primarily want the same thing. But the parent's experience goes right along with the athlete's experience. So imagine a point guard will continue to use that coming home and dad says, hey, how did practice go? You know what? It sucked. I tell you what, I should be a starter. I should be out on that floor. Coach isn't really giving me opportunities. I don't know what's going on over there. You know, coach isn't treating me right. He's given other kids preference over me. Now, is dad likely to say, hey, um, it's going to be okay. You're going to be, or is dad emotionally getting involved to say, you know, my son's getting screwed. So the parent experience tends to go with the kid's experience. Now imagine if that same kid sets goals, coach reviews goals with them, asks about the kid's role in the team. Kid says, hey, I think I should be a starter. Okay, great. But here's how I view your talents and skills. And here's the gap that exists between where you are now and you becoming a starter. Here's how you need to close those gaps. At practice, you're going to have to do A, B, and C. I expect to see also D, E, and F as a result of that. If you do that consistently, you will earn more playing time on the court and possibly become a starter. Would you disagree or agree with what I'm saying? The athlete says, okay, I see that. I understand that. Now they go home. Dad says, how, how does practice go? And he says, you know what? I understand where I'm at. And I have a map to becoming a starter. And now we have created a team that does that, a team that is supporting each other. Now all of a sudden, parents aren't mad. Parents understand. Their kids aren't unhappy. Their kids are feeling like they're part of the team. They feel like they understand where they are within the team. And what we found is when these things happen, when values are set and in place, when, when coaches coach to those values, when the players can recite those values and they can tell you whether or not they are following those values or they straying from those values, parents, not that they're less engaged, they're just less confrontational. It's not that they don't care now. It's that they see their concerns are being already met by the coaches. And I've worked with a program seeing, uh, where a coach transformed from uh, not coaching that way to coaching that way 
And it went from like all kinds of parent complaints year one to no parent complaints year two. So are what a lot of coaches missing then is, well, are they unaware that this is the best way to handle these types of situations? Because I think a lot of people from the outside look in and go, we need constraints to, to keep these parents and, and toxic coaches in line when really it seems like, as you're mentioning, getting ahead of this and understanding, Hey, it takes a lot of work, but if you invest the time in your student athletes, you will mitigate problems downstream. Are we just not communicating that to coaches enough that this is the best way to handle this or to school districts in general? Uh, yes. To answer the short answer to that question, Joe is yes, but here's why there's a why behind that today. If a coach went to an athletic director, let's just hypothetically play this out, right? You're my athletic director, Joe, and I'm the coach. And I go to you and say, Joe, I don't feel like I'm getting the most out of my student athletes. I feel like I'm leaving things on the table. I think there's more I could be doing and I should be doing to be a better coach, Joe, both from a from, from schemes, but more importantly, to the experience that I'm creating for these kids. Man, Joe, what do I need to do differently? How would you respond? Ooh, that's a good point. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Right. And athletic directors don't know because they don't go watch their coaches at practice. They don't, you know, out they, they go to the games, but they're not watching and listening, the watching the, the the behaviors and listening to the words your coaches use every day. So the only way to do that is to be able to give coaches objective feedback, data-driven feedback on how their coaching is impacting student-athletes. That is where our research comes in. That's what we do, is coaches need to know on a quantitative basis how they are impacting the kids. And when I know that, now I know where I can grow. Now I know how I can improve. As I said in that TED Talk, when when I believe as a coach that I have great trust-based connections with all my kids, with all my athletes, and then I learn that only half of them believe that, that's where I need to grow. That, That gives me, this is my game film as a coach. You know, coaches... Every day of every practice can tell an athlete what they're doing well and what their opportunities for growth are and what they need to do differently. A coach gets it typically zero, never. We give them an opportunity at least once a year to do that. And the athletic director then has an opportunity to coach a coach. 50 years down the line, Bill, what's a way that you could give, I'll say, near real-time feedback quantitatively to a coach Sky's the limit on what you might be able to use from a technological standpoint. But, you know, you mentioned you, you get feedback instantly as a player. I remember watching game film or excuse me, practice film every day of what I did. But you're right. Coaches don't have that. What would a technological advancement look like that could provide that type of feedback in a perfect world? Hmm. Oh, I love dreaming. And I love asking those big questions too, Joe. All right. Let me. Let me consider for a moment. It it would be, 
you know how they put like sensors in the core, the, the helmet of quarterbacks now to, to try and get real time feedback on their brainwaves to, to understand concussions, right. To follow concussion protocols, things like that. It would be some sort of device that did my words or actions just decimate a player in the moment. How are my behaviors impacting on the court now? And this is really fascinating um, to that end. If I, a, another quick story, a, a buddy of mine uh, who has a podcast, his name is Dr. Larry Widman. Um, and Dr. Widman, uh, and I go back some years, uh, he, he does, he, he's, a, he's a psychiatrist who's an MD, but now he's probably, I think probably 80% of his time is dedicated to sports, meaning helping teams uh, overcome mental hurdles to, to create more stronger kind of the mindset aspect. He was doing work with the uh, University of Nebraska volleyball team some years ago. And um, I remember him sharing the story with me that has since uh, their amazing coach, Coach Cook, has come out and, and said as much in his own book. But he um, was watching and observing Coach Cook, and Coach Cook had asked him to come help. An example of a very forward-thinking coach, right? Hey, I'm not obtaining... Now, this guy's never not made an NCAA tournament, by the way. But it had been some years, this is back in 2013, it had been five, six years since they had won a national title uh, or made a Final Four. And I think it was really bothering him. And he kind of came to the conclusion that, hey, you know, the girls have evolved, but I haven't. I still coach the same way I've always coached. Anyway, long short of that is um, Dr. Wedman was observing coaches' behavior during games. And of course, towards a, a tight game, what do so many coaches do? They get up, they pace, they're walking around, they're, you know, their body language, right? And, and he asked Coach Cook, uh, what do you think those behaviors communicate to your athletes? And again, this is coming from uh, Dr. Woodman and me, but according to him, coaches' responses were things like, uh, well, shows them I'm engaged. It tells them that um, I'm, 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 I'm intense. I'm, uh, I'm actively participating, that I want to win, that I'm really kind of focused on the floor. And okay, interesting. So Dr. Woodman goes to the players, says, hey, how does it make you feel when coach gets up? What do the players say? Nervous. Now I'm watching coach. My attention is split between coach's behaviors on the sideline and my and, and the game on the floor. So no longer is 100% of my focus on the floor. It's between coach and the floor, right? It begins, the players start to wonder, if I screw up, is he going to yank me out now? Am I going to have to do the walk of shame? So it would be the ability, back to the question now, to be able to have instant feedback on what my behaviors, how they are impacting the athletes, does it is it going to make them free to make, you know, does my culture, does this environment promote a player that really wants to take that last shot? There's four seconds left, right? Am I afraid to take it or do I want to take it because of what coach is doing? Right. And you really have to know your players too, because it, I, like you said, a lot of coaches end up pacing. They're 
their volume increases. I mean, tensions are high at the end of a game and how you, I think a lot of coaches fail to realize how to properly motivate someone. And I think sometimes it gets demeaning instead of empowering or uplifting, but how do you do that? How do you average that out for an entire team? Cause I think of a, I think of a football team, there's a hundred guys, there's a hundred personalities. I mean, I remember when I was playing before a game, people would be getting hyped and someone would hit me in the head, you know, to fire me up. And it would just, it would tank, it would tank my, my mental state. I just did not like that. I didn't respond to it. How do you know, you know, for an entire team, how to communicate with them since so many people respond differently to different types of, of inputs? I like the question. There's, there's a variety, I believe a variety of ways. So first of all, this is why it's important to, to know statistically in a data-driven way, whether or not you, do you really know your players? You know, that's why I think it's important to, you know, again, getting back to that example, if only half of them feel like they have a connection with me, do I really know that person? Okay. Cause I'm not going to divulge. I'm not going to cr- let them crawl into my life if I don't trust them. So that has to be in place. So that, that's number one. Coach has to be very, very intentional about making sure they have trust connections with their team. They have to be intentional about creating a psychologically safe environment, so on and so forth. Now, let me also say before I answer the question again, um, they have to challenge players. Um, my first TED Talk, I talk about discomfort and the role it plays. It has to... It's, it, our work with schools, with understanding coaching behaviors involves just as important as connections is using those connections then to properly challenge the player and make them uncomfortable because man, that's the only place where growth occurs. Okay. So I wanted to throw that in. So people didn't think, you know, they were promoting this big group hug, kumbaya, love fest kind of coaching. It's not true at all. Anyway. So back to the question, how do we know? Um, have you ever asked, you know, if, if I'm in volleyball, I might have a, at least one, if not two or three assistant coaches. If I'm in basketball, the same. If I'm in football, I got a litany of coaches. Now, as a head coach, I can't know all hundred, but I can know segments of them, right? And have you run an exercise, which is really, we've done this. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing to do with teams. Have you run an exercise that says, hey, when you need to be lifted up, how do you like it? You will hear some people say, you know what? I need a fist bump. You might hear a female athlete say, I need a hug. You might see a female athlete say, don't touch me, but I want you in my grill and say, come on, let's get going. You might find a male athlete that says, you know, I need an arm around me and I need you to tell me that you got my back. So that can be a learned thing. And the funny part is, is to your point, why, why wouldn't a teammate know that about you? Why wouldn't a coach know that about you? Because they're not being intentional enough about those things and how important they are to not just the experience, but to the performance of that athlete. And I'm glad you mentioned performance because so much of sports is mental. And I think we forget that we all hone in on speed, strength, you know, your technical ability. But I would argue there are many, there are a lot of people alive who could kick a field goal successfully. 
but there's the mental aspect. Uh, and you could even argue there are thousands of people who could kick professionally who have kicked in college, but the headspace to actually, when the game's on the line to make that kick is, is something very different and few have. How do you facilitate or coach that type of environment that I know when, you know, when we're in practice or just day to day, the headspace, you know, we want it to be, you know, conducive in a safe environment, but how do you train the mental piece of one of your athletes and push them beyond their limits, but still respecting boundaries? Part of that, Joe, is done in the day, day in, day out, meaning that in practice versus, and, and we've talked about examples, but stopping practice when somebody does something right, that's a mental thing. To ask, instead of tell somebody what they did wrong, ask them to evaluate what they had just done. That's a mental thing. Teams now, um, that well, no, that's a true, I'll, I'll start off by saying, teams now, the smart teams now, dedicate hours a week to what, what we call above the shoulders work, not below the shoulders, above the shoulders work. And I referenced in my TED talk, a, a team that, you know, um, realized bigger growth, greater performance when they spent less time in the gym working on skills and drills and more time away from the gym working on mindset, team dynamics, things like that. There has to be, when you think about how I work below the blow, you know, below the neck is always a result of how I feel above the neck. And there has to be in, in teams that are focused on this, they will consistently produce better results. They will get more out of their players, meaning when I say better results. They'll get, as my uh, gentleman I referred to earlier, Dr. Whitman, he calls it maxing out. Your ability to max out goes up with the improvement in the mental game when you have that in place. The mental aspect to this, some people are naturally better at it. I mean, my goodness, Michael Jordan, right? The most, if, if you watched the, uh, the 10-part series, The Last Dance, there were a lot of profound moments and lines in there, but one of the more profound as it related to, to Michael Jordan versus Phil Jackson, as example, but the one that related to Jordan was in the last, uh, the first two minutes of part 10, where they talk about, it's not his ability to jump higher, run faster, shoot better. It's that Michael Jordan had the amazing ability to be present in the moment that he was never anywhere else than in that time. He never was concerned about missing the last shot because he never had a mindset of why would I be concerned about, you know, he, he never put himself out there and thought about missing it because he was always here now. And the guy even said, he goes, people spend, they go to hash ramps. They spend, they spend years of their life trying to figure out how to do that when he did it naturally so well. Now, I think I know your answer, but who's a coach that embodies this mentality? Phil. Yeah. yeah. Phil Jackson. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, I think Tom Osborne did in different ways, uh, in unique ways. 
Tom Osborne's talked about meditation um, for years. I remember as a young man, you know, thinking oh, meditation, that is weird. Okay. Who are, you know? Um, yeah. But people that remain calm, people that, that didn't allow their emotions to uh, create negative behaviors of their, of their players. Now on the transformational coach spectrum, I wrote down two names and I want to, I want to know if you had to rank them, who would you put higher Phil Jackson or John Wooden? Um, I, I think if you put Phil Jackson back in John Wooden's time, he's less effective uh, and, and vice versa. I think you put John Wooden in Phil Jackson's time. He's less effective. Interesting. Back to earlier. Uh-huh. The eras. Okay. Can you dive into why that might be? If if you asked me to do something, if you and, and some of it's personality, but but more than anything, um, if you ask me to go do something blindly, I'd say why. I, I don't get it. I, I want to understand the why. Why are we doing this? I, I need you know. So many young men and women want to do that. They don't want to just be told. Uh, we see it in the in in business. Um, today's leaders get frustrated with the Gen X, or excuse me, Gen Y, Gen Z, because they always want to know why. Well, you can fight it, or you can learn to work with it. So. There's a lot less militaristic approach um, today, coaching to be effective than there than there used to be. To, I think to to be effective. I mean, my understanding, and it's and it's not just an athletic thing. It's um, the Department of Defense is really struggling to find to to get recruits to get people in their doors to sign up for the military and whatever branch of service that the numbers are dropping and they're desperately trying to understand why and what they need to do to cater to them. Now, do I, do, do I think that they may have to change their approach? I do to, are they going to have all of a sudden have to be really soft on people? No, they just got to figure it out. There's, there's, there's a balance in there. Going back to Phil Jackson, I think one of the most impressive things to me when I watched that documentary was how he handled and led Dennis Rodman. For anyone who's aware of Dennis Rodman, how about if you're unaware, just do a Google search and look at images and uh, and you'll see semantics from, from the worm, as he's called. Handling tough personalities as a coach can be very difficult. Phil did a great job, but what's your advice to a coach who has a problem athlete, which is really a lot of times I think problems at home for a student athlete. How do you navigate those situations? Well, first of all, let's, let's address Phil Jackson and, 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 and Rodman. And overall, your value as a coach, um, how good you are as a coach is probably more gauged by your ability to coach a Dennis Rodman and a Michael Jordan versus a Steve Kerr. Uh, Steve Kerr is likely, who, who, by the way, I I think now is an amazing coach and I have tons of respect for for Steve Kerr. I guarantee you Steve Kerr is a hell of a lot easier to coach 
than Jordan or Rodman. Okay. And I think most people would agree with that. Well, what Phil did, it wasn't just coaching Rodman. It was integrating him into the entire dynamic of the team. And I think probably what illustrated that so well is a couple of things. And this is, this is interesting. And this is where people think that all these, what used to be called soft skills and coaching are now quantifiable. Um, when you think back to when Phil talked about when he first met Dennis Rodman, um, he was in, I think, Reinsdorf's home and he walks in and Dennis is on the couch and kind of gives a, hey, what's up, coach? And he said, Dennis, stand up and shake my hand. Take your hat off. So right away, he set, you know, some parameters, basically a boundary. But then Dennis talked later on about how Phil knew me and he knew what I needed. The the, the incident, the, the, the case in point there that is when during the season, when Dennis says, hey, I need a vacation. I need a couple of days off. No one else is asking for a vacation. As a matter of fact, his teammates, including Michael, were going, no, don't give him a vacation. And Dennis is like, no, he needs it. I'm going I'm to give him 48 hours. Now he took more than that. But, um, but that's an example of, and what, here's what's interesting. Speaking of Wooden, at one point Wooden said that I thought that part of great coaching was treating everybody the same. And he said, that was one of my, one of my two biggest mistakes in coaching was thinking that I needed to treat everybody the same. He goes, and what I, he goes, it didn't take me long to realize that if I had 15 people on my basketball team, I had to coach in 15 different ways. I had to have 15 different styles of coaching to be effective. That's what Phil Jackson understood. And he was a master at is understanding how to do that and yet keep a team dynamic together. Now, I can't remember the balance of your question. No, that's, that's perfect. I'll, I'll throw it back into the corporate world then, Bill. How do, as a... As a manager, well, let's go up a level. Let's say you're a director or an executive. You often don't have, like we mentioned, those one-on-one interactions with people, which I think makes it harder to connect with the workforce. And then there is a definite detachment between employee and the executives who, quote, just don't get it. How do you how do, you do that at, at a higher scale to understand people at that level if you don't get a chance to talk to them one-on-one? What would your advice be? to larger corporations or to people in those positions? Uh, You have a completely backwards culture. The number one activity leaders should have in their bailiwick, the most effective two most effective activities are number one, getting effective feedback. And number two is holding one-on-ones on a consistent basis. And when I say holding one-on-ones, that start with and always include just personal updates, getting to know you. Joe, if I am on your team and you're my leader, you're my boss, you're my manager, whatever you want to call it, you're my coach, you better know me. You better understand my personal goals. You better understand my professional goals. And when you do that, you are uniquely challenged to help me develop and grow. You know 
when it's okay to challenge me. You know that when my grandfather was sick and I was under a huge stress or my when my dad was in his last days, we got a big project to work, Bill. You know what? My dad's dying. If you don't know me, you may not know that. Or you may not know how close I was to my grandfather. And the same, you see how this works? So to, to not know means you don't care or in what, in, in what we found in the world of sports is not that you don't care. It's that you're not intentional about doing it because unlike perhaps in business and the world of sport, I have never met a coach that I don't believe care deeply about their student athletes. I think every coach has cared deeply about the seal, putting the positive on. I think every coach cares, not every, 99.9% of the coaches care deeply about their student athletes. I cannot teach them how to care, but what I can do is teach them how to show they care. And that's what business in some cases is missing too. It's, I don't think by and large business leaders don't care. I think they do care, but how do they show they care? And that's through one-on-one meetings, through giving feedback, understanding who I am as a person, caring me, um, caring about me as a person more than just a number, things like that. I think you're highlighting the need for employees to have direct contact with their leader and the importance of what I'll call lower or middle level management. Because if you have too many report, people reporting to one person, you can't have those one-on-one interactions. It's just physically not enough time in the day to do that for, I mean, even 20 people, it gets, it gets tough. So what's your stance then on companies going to these flatter organizations like Elon Musk is doing where he, you know, cuts the fat and makes them as spread out and flat as possible, but these people don't have someone to directly contact flowing up. Is this just going to be an eventual downfall for these companies in your mind? Uh, Well, time will tell, but here's what our research shows that if I don't have the ability to engage either with um, people around me in a healthy way, if I don't feel like I have, then if I don't feel like I have somebody above me helping me develop my skill set, helping me grow, then yeah. Um, And I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but uh, our research clearly indicates that managers, leaders who do not do one-on-ones effect, or, or, or they don't do them effectively or they do not spend time, if they do not ask about the lives, about their people, about their lives outside of work, you know, so on and so forth, yeah, turnover goes up. It, it, it is, we did some research even post-COVID. Um, when I have a great trusting relationship, if I feel with my boss, if I feel challenged at work, um, you know, all these things that we study, my likelihood of leaving drops pretty dramatically in a, how about this in a statistically significant way. Are there any correlations in your data bill from all the interviews and research you've done that still puzzle you a bit where you go, I'm surprised this data point that is so consistent is correlated with this outcome and I can't really explain it. Do you have any of those that linger? I'm considering. There's one that 
surprised me that actually came from the world of education. And then we put it into sports and then we put it into the workplace to see if it holds true, which is the fun factor. So, you know, we work in three verticals, education, sports, and business. And one of the things we were surveying students in a classroom about my teacher makes this, this class or this topic fun. And there's a strong correlation between the, between classrooms and students that, that had fun in class and their, what they thought of their teacher, their engagement in class, um, uh, how they, how they, uh, how they, um, tied in their overall experience of the school, so on and so forth. Right. So, like, huh? Well, probably works in athletics. So we added the same question in sports. You know what? The more fun I have, there's a, a, a correlation to, I believe I've got a great coach, which is interesting. So I thought, okay, will this hold true in business? And we put it in business and the fun factor is very important in business. Does my manager, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact question, but something along the lines of, does my manager make this job fun? And when I say fun, what we've discovered is a lot of, especially the older school people, guys my age, I go, oh, I don't care, work's fun. Get paid to do the damn job, right? Da, 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 da. You know, I don't want a ping pong table in my office. And what we've learned, and it gets back to your question, what, what's surprising is what people define as fun. When you know me and you crawl into my life, that's just fun. When you challenge me in any unique way, that's fun. When I feel like I can come to work in a structured, safe environment, that's fun. No mention of ping pong tables, no mention of a four and a half day work week. It's always what my manager is doing. So uh, one of the takeaways I, I have from speaking with you and, and watching many things you've done, Bill, is that coaches, managers, leaders have a greater impact than I think most of us can imagine. And it's it's hard work to to build the environments and the teams and the relationships with people that are needed to be truly transformational. A resource you have out there for folks to check out. I know you have your book, The Coaching Effect, that folks can get wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Correct. et cetera. What are some other ways folks can get a hold of of your expertise, Bill, to guide them in their leadership journeys here? Um, number one, listen to this. <laughs> Um, uh, Joe, you, uh, I love where you took this conversation. That was super fun. So thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, uh I know, you know, it's funny. I got, for example, I got, a, I can't remember what I was doing. I was on YouTube the other day and, um, somebody had posted a conversation with Bill Ekstrom, uh, which I didn't know was going to be posted on YouTube. I remember visiting with this, with this person. So, I, you know, and I looked at like conversation with Bill Ekstrom. I go, well, I wonder how long that's been on there. What's well, it? Says, Three hours old. It's like, Okay. So I, I clicked on it. And I'm listening to it. Okay, that's pretty good stuff, you know. <laughs> um, that which was a lot of fun. Are uh, my both my TED talks? I think do a really nice job of of balancing out the first one, all focused around uh, why we need to be uncomfortable to grow. The second one, really kind of bringing it down into a youth sports 
look, uh, coaching from a youth sports look. Um, on our website, we have tons of white papers and resources that people can go excelinstitute.com or excelsports.com. Um, I think those are, as you mentioned, the book, The Coaching Effect, uh, is available at all the usual spots. And people can reach out to me. Um, it's funny. We're, I'm in the process of writing a second book uh, along with our director of research. This one focused on uh, coaching as it relates to sports and our research. Because soon we're going to have about a measured about a million uh, about a million uh, coaching uh, points that we've quantified between coaches and student athletes. So we're, we're learning lots. We're going to put out another book called The Coaching Effect Sports, probably is what it'll be called. Uh, so, th- so that's coming out. But anyway, if people want to contact me, they can reach out, email me, you know, um, find me on Instagram, um, Facebook, you know, soon to be Facebook, Twitter. I should say Facebook again, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm on, I'm on all those social media platforms. Amazing. Thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Joe. This has been a treat. Uh, and best of luck to you. 